And right then and there, the executive officer of our sister squadron, who was our flight lead that day, said, hey, maneuver your jet. They're shooting at us. So interestingly, one of my most fearful flights uh, was a night where we had some real difficulty getting everybody to land on the aircraft carrier because the seas were so rough. Well, this thing is heaving in these giant seas where if normal is zero, up 20 feet and down 20 feet. So 40 foot swings. And that's not easy to land on. It's not easy to land on a carrier in the first place. Welcome to the Hurled Minds Podcast, where we discover how to get out of our own way, unleash the full capability of our mind, become the hero of our story, and a hero for other people. From an evolutionary perspective, we've evolved to manage threatening encounters. I want to do everything in my ability to help them, but they make the call. We have to do it in a way that doesn't just assume that going faster is going to be the cure-all. When you suffer and then you come out of it on the other side, you stand a little taller, your voice doesn't shake anymore, your eyes are always up. Sorry to depress you guys. Self-doubt is par for the course. It's just how you choose to deal with them, react to them or not react to them. Uh, A little tough love goes a long way and high expectations also goes a long way. The more you expect of someone, the more they'll do. I have to keep moving forward. No good comes from going back. I don't need red tape. I'm not into rules. I'm not into regulation. I'm just going to do this. Welcome back to the Heroic Minds Podcast. On today's episode, we have Vincent Aiello, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot. Vincent spent nearly a quarter of a century as a U.S. Navy fighter pilot. He deployed overseas on aircraft carriers numerous times and was selected to attend and instruct at the U.S. Navy Fighter Weapons School, better known as Top Gun. Not the Top Gun we've seen in Hollywood, but the real thing. In this episode, we cover a lot of ground. From landing on an aircraft carrier at night, experiencing nine Gs of force on your body, leadership in the Navy, heroism, the growth mindset of debriefing, maintaining focus while alone in the cockpit, and a whole lot more. We conclude with a powerful story of taking on fire unexpectedly while passing over Iraq and the most memorable flight of Vincent's career, which I would call a hero coming home. So buckle up for this action-packed episode, no pun intended, because we cover a lot of ground. And to bring things home, we finish with two extremely powerful stories that tie everything together. I will also say, if you enjoy Vincent's approach, if you enjoy this topic, be sure to check out his extremely popular podcast, The Fighter Pilot Podcast, which he started because he looked through podcast offerings and noticed that there was nothing offered on this topic in this space. So he is the host of an incredible podcast, The Fighter Pilot Podcast. The link is in the description of this episode, and he will touch on some of the topics today on this episode. Before we hop into things today, let's give a little shout out to our best friends and supporters over at True Local whose CEO right now is getting tons of attention because of the quality of his business and also how he carries himself. He's one of the most respected people that I have never met, to be quite honest. Mark LaFleur is an outstanding person, never met him, but the amount of people that I have talked to that know him say he is an amazing person. So, the, statistically then, I would say this guy is doing something right. He's treating people the right way, and so does his business, True Local. So if you want to check out True Local, if you want to give him a try, if you want high-quality, locally-sourced meats delivered to your doorstep with no hidden fees and incredible customer service, check out 
true local. And if you want to give them a try, use my discount code Heroic Minds 25, all capital letters, to get $25 off a regular size box and $10 off a personal size box. That is true local, T R U L O C A L dot C A. You decide when you want your box to arrive. You decide when you don't want it to arrive. And if you cancel and you want to take a couple months off, zero hidden fees, no issues, no hassle. Just fire it up when you want it and say no when you don't want it. It's quite simple. And the product and service is top-notch A1. So that's truelocal.ca. All right, I think we're ready to hop into this episode. Buckle up. Vincent Aiello, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot. Here we go. From what I know of your story, you kind of were able to live out your childhood dream in a sense of becoming you know, a fighter pilot in a nutshell, I guess, what was that process like from childhood to one day becoming who you always wanted to be? No, you're absolutely right. I was uh, first an attendant of a f- air show at eight years old and t- was just smitten. And I decided that's what I wanted to do with my life. And I, I wouldn't say I spent every waking moment from eight to 18 thinking about it, but somewhere in high school, my stepfather challenged me to go for it. And so I did. And, and the process was a lot like when you, in the old days, you know, these days you're phone just tells you where to turn. But in the old days, if you knew you were in point A and you wanted to get to point B, you got a map and you looked at how to get there and which turns you'll need to make. And so I said, all right, well, to be a fighter pilot, you have to be an officer. To be an officer, you have to have a college degree. And to have a college degree, you have to have enough good enough grades to get into college. So I just worked it backwards and tried to go to the U.S. Naval Academy and was denied. And so I instead enrolled in the ROTC program with the Navy and found my way in. And it's just one of those things where if you want something bad enough, I I don't think you'll take no for an answer. I like that approach of working backwards uh, towards that goal. Because on the podcast, many times when we talk about goal chasing, it's not to just be enamored by and tunnel vision on that long-term goal. It's important to have, but then what can I tackle right now that's in front of me? It almost seems like that was maybe the approach. It's, yeah, I'd like to be a fighter pilot one day, but this math exam is the best thing I can take care of right now. I think that's true. You have to know the baby steps you can take to ultimately get where you're trying to go. And uh, right. I mean, nobody just suddenly appears at the top of Mount Everest. You have to prepare for months and then you have to get the guides and the equipment. I presume never done it, but, and then it's step after step grueling for however many weeks it takes to get up there. And then eventually you're there, but it's the journey too, which is probably not necessarily the point you're making. And on that note, one of the things that seems to often come up when talking about the Navy, specifically a fighter pilot, there is so much that goes into the planning as opposed to the sexy side that we see in Hollywood, which is the flying portion and right. uh, in Top Gun. Could you put an example of how much planning goes into a mission or before you actually are, are taking off? Well, sure. And, and I'll give you a spectrum. I mean, you might... B- be called up uh, if you're in the ready room and they might say, hey, we need someone to go check out this airplane. And you say, oh, I'll take it. And you go jump in your flight gear. You make sure there's some airspace and you go. And that could be maybe the easiest of them. And then there are others that might involve 30 or 40 aircraft where if the flight is on Thursday, well, they're planning on Monday and they're arranging the mission planning factors. They're looking at the targets and the weather and who's going to be on what frequency. And then they put together this elaborate kneeboard card, as it's called, uh, 
uh, that you take with you in flight and then they have to brief everybody hours in advance and then you go off into your element briefs of two to three to four folks and you talk about what you're going to do and all the contingencies and so planning is a huge part of military aviation and there's not a lot that's done really at the extreme that I first mentioned. It's more that you think about what you're going to go do and then you go do it. And the reason for that is twofold. Number one, we don't want to squander taxpayer dollars. Uh, And number two, it's dangerous. And if you don't plan well, you could have a mishap. When I approach topics like this, I, at what point are you able to get into that zone of, of just acting without everything being consciously thought of? Is that even a thing in your profession? Is is that a point you can get to? I, I relate this to sport and think, yeah, there are a lot of different things I have to be aware of when playing hockey. But at the same time, we see most athletes actually better when they're able to not doze off, but leverage that subconscious mind and, and let go of the hyper-focus on each individual task. Is that an approach you have? Or, or how would you approach that concept of balancing the planning, the numbers, and the execution side? Well, I, I think you're spot on. And it comes down to any task that requires proficiency, requires, of course, some training, but then also repetition and practice. And so I'm not a hockey player, but I would assume it's similar to most any other sport. Uh, in fact, I've read anecdotally of baseball players who, as the pitcher releases the ball, in an instant can see the way the little threads on the baseball are spinning, and they make up their mind right then and there, subconsciously, whether they're going to swing or not. And of course, when and you, when you watch it in real time, the ball moves so quickly, it's amazing that they can do it. And so, same thing with concert musicians. I have to imagine that they are a violinist, for example, not really thinking about the individual finger movements they're making. They're just getting the zone. And, and I think it's the same way in aviation. You, you practice, you train, you rehearse, you practice, you train, rehearse, and, and you do it over and over and over until some of those muscle movements are second nature. And then you can focus on the things that are different for that day or what is my particular mission right now but I don't think about the actual movements of the aircraft. I have three, uh, three young boys. Two of them are drivers now. And I remember when they first started driving, it was all of their capacity just to drive. And now both <laughs> of them are you know, able to flip the channel on the radio or, God forbid, look at their phones, which I tell them, of course, not to. So <laughs> I think it's proficiency and experience. But there's a part of it, too, from the research I've done of the amount of mathematics that have to be done uh, along a, a flight as well. And and when someone tells you potentially to change your route or or make a sudden abrupt change in what you're doing, there's then mathematics involved and in, in some from the outside looking in some complex, you know, cognitive tasks. Mm-hmm. Is that can that also be approached the same way? Can you become so fluid or or proficient proficient perfect in that? you're able to do that as well in the same approach, even though it's physical versus more of a cognitive task? You know, I think you can, Ben. And it's funny you actually bring that up because within the last month or two, I put a blog on my website, fighterpilotpodcast.com, and we we call them musings. And I, I asked the rhetorical question, how good do you have to be at math to be a fighter pilot? Because in my capacity now as a podcast host, I receive questions from young people all the time. And I presume that they struggle in math in high school. And so the answer I tell them is you need to be good with numbers and basic arithmetic, but you certainly don't have to be a math major. Although 
coincidentally, I was at UCLA. <laughs> um, but that was simply because I found that to be my easiest subject. And again, back to the beginning, I was just trying to get from point A to point B and, and a college degree was the route to get there. So I picked what I thought would be easiest. So I think the answer to your question is with experience, you understand, okay, the guy told me to descend, let's say, uh, from this altitude to that altitude in this many minutes. Okay, well, I know that that roughly sounds like I better hurry. So I'm, let me start down at this rate. And then now that I have a moment, okay, that was 12,000 feet. And he said to be there in three minutes or less. So that's uh, 12 divided by three, 4,000 feet per minute. Oh, look, I'm already doing 3,000 feet per minute. Let me just tighten it up. So what I'm trying to say is I think you get a sort of a sixth sense of I, I either know I can hurry or not, or I can take my time. And then you can fine tune it with that cognitive math of this many thousands of feet and this many minutes is this many feet per minute, and then you can tighten it up. So again, I think like anything, um, my father was a professional musician, and I remember once asking him if he could play Flight of the Bumblebee on his trumpet. And I don't know if it's a song he'd necessarily ever played at a gig, but he picked up his trumpet and started playing it, and I I was just blown away. And so I, I think it's similar when you get to that level of proficiency in something, you can at least fake it. So you've got the physical side, the performance, you have the cognitive and mathematics side and being proficient in that to execute you know, a, a, a mission properly or a flight properly and safely. There's also the variables of adrenaline and fear that comes into play. Now, in, in some of your work and in, in some of your interviews, I heard you talking about different experiences, both physical or mental, in, that are the, you know, a source or from adrenaline. Mm. How do you allow yourself to work within those circumstances? Because sometimes they're just bodily functions that you can't totally block out. Oh, that's completely true. And so there again is where training comes in because when there is a fearful situation, you have to be able to act in spite of that. And last time I checked, I believe that's the definition of courage. And so you say to yourself, right, positive thinking, if, if that's what it takes, I can do this. I've been trained to do this. I know how to do this. So I'm going to do this. And I think that really sets the stage for your success. When you start thinking about, I don't know what I'm doing, or I can't do this. I'm not good at this, um, which is why it's so important. I mean, it's a bit of a tangent, but for parents, right? The way we say things to our children, if we say you're not good at this, that's what they think. And so you, what I always try to tell my kids is don't tell me I can't say I'm getting better at or I'm struggling with because I think it really sets the tone for what can and can we not really do in our lives. And so I think you have to identify the, the threat that's making you fearful. And then you have to say, I've been trained to do this or I, can, I need help. Hey, and there's always agencies you can call and say, this is what I'm facing. What do you think? And then people can help you out. But when it comes right down to it in a fighter, like an FA 18 or an F 16, it's just you in there. And so you've got to be able to do it. And the adrenaline is just something that comes along with it. Um, interestingly, one of my most fearful flights, uh, was a night where we had some real difficulty getting everybody to land on the aircraft carrier because the seas were so rough that this huge, enormous ship, 98,000 tons, four and a half acres of steel flight deck, uh, you know, if you stood it on its tail as it's tall as the Empire State Building, well, this thing is heaving in these giant seas where if normal is zero, up 20 feet and down 20 feet, so 40-foot swings. And that's not easy to land on. It's not easy to land on a carrier in the first place. And I, it took me three tries, took others a little bit less, took others more. And 
it was, there was fear, there was adrenaline, there was all those things. But I'll tell you, Ben, to your question, I didn't really notice the adrenaline until after I'd landed as I was taxiing to park that the way we taxi an F-18 is with your feet. So you don't steer it like a car with your hands, but the, like a car goes left and right. Well, an airplane does that with its rudder pedals and my quads, my legs just started shaking. And I learned later, it was just the adrenaline just coursing out of my body. It's like, okay, you don't need me anymore, but I need to burn myself up. So I'll do it in the largest muscle group in the human body. And that's your thighs. And so I found it very difficult to smoothly control my airplane with my legs because my legs were shaking so bad. So I, I think it's just one more of those aspects of being a fighter pilot that requires highly trained individuals. You find yourself, you know, you're alone in that, in that fighter jet are there ever times, were there ever times where you did have a, a conversation with yourself that you needed to relax or you needed to dial back in, focus in? And what did that process look like for you? Did you have a trained process, uh, prepared process no, in that moment? Not a trained process. Uh, and I will clarify that there are some two-seat fighter aircraft. And of course, there are other military aircraft with many seats for folks to uh, do their missions. But in the single-seat community where I spent most of my career, it is one of those things where, you know, in the ready room, which is like a, a living room, but for the squadron, where people sit around, you can share information with each other and the, the older pilots will mentor the younger pilots. And so I don't remember if it was an original idea of my own or if someone talked about it, but I, I got to the point where I would just speak out loud to myself. And if you were to record it, it would probably sound kind of strange, but <laughs> it was, it was okay. You're going to turn left in a second. And, and it was just a way of hearing it. So it's one more thing, if you will, uh, for your body to say, okay, in a moment, I know I'm going to do this. And so if I say it, not only have I said it, but I've also heard myself. And so it's not just thinking, it's speaking and hearing. And so I would talk to myself and not in a creepy way. I don't do it now. Uh, or I'm sure my wife would tell me about it, but <laughs> I, I would do it then just as one more way to kind of communicate my own intentions to myself and and then, yeah, there might be a little bit, okay, you know, you're going to push over in, in three miles. It's going to be dark. You can do this. You know, I'm thinking about a night carrier landing, for example. And it's just, just something that if there's no one else to give you that reassurance, you can give it to yourself. And sometimes that works. Wow. Okay, we need to stop and dive into this a little more because we talk about the. We always talk about the story in our mind. I always say that, that you can tailor and change the story in your mind. Before I let my past self continue to ramble on about how cool this idea is, I wanted to look into this idea on a scientific level because there must be a difference between saying something to yourself in your own mind versus saying it to yourself out loud and then you hearing that. And so I looked into it and I found a doctor that did an amazing article on this, actually, this idea. Uh, Joseph Nicolosi is his name. American clinical psychologist, and quoting him directly, he says, if we speak out loud, it forces us to slow down our thoughts and process them differently because we engage the language centers of our brain. For those listeners that have listened to past podcasts on neuroscience and these concepts, I mean, that actually makes sense. It adds up. If you, if you think about it, we can only focus on so many things at once. And we know when we try to focus on too many things at once is when things can go a little bit haywire. So I, I thought this idea was fascinating. It makes so much sense. We have to stop and listen to what we're saying. We have to try and comprehend and understand what we're hearing, which is our own voice. 
I think that's kind of cool. And as Vincent said, yeah, some people may think you're a little crazy, but if it has the benefits of slowing down your thoughts and then also dialing you in to, to perform, hey, maybe it's not a bad idea. And if someone calls you out or makes fun of you, then you can tell them, you know what, I'm channeling my inner fighter pilot here and you should be fine. To improve your present moment and, and how you perceive the present moment. And, and obviously there's lots of literature to support that. But this is the first time I've heard, which makes total sense that you're speaking out loud. You're not only then changing the narrative and thinking about it, you're also hearing yourself say it, which is just another voice. I think that's fascinating. I think that's yeah. such a good point. Yeah, no, I, I watched your trailer on your website and it sounds like you do a very good job of clarifying that for people. And I agree with you. That's part of the reason when you asked if I'd come on the show and I checked out the video on your website, I said, absolutely, because I believe in what you're doing, Ben. So uh, on behalf of your listeners and followers, <laughs> thank you. But oh, wow. uh, along that point, well, you know, hey, um, <laughs> along that point, I, I mean, I'm no psychologist, I'm no scientist, but I know that the spoken word is amazingly powerful. And, and again, it, it certainly is with children or really anyone. I mean, think about for those who are married, the way you say something and what you say to your spouse. And I'm by no means an expert at this. So she's probably behind me. It's probably going to come hit me on the back of the head. But um, <laughs> but but it is such a powerful thing that we forget. And, and in trying times, I think we can not only, like you said, set the narrative, but then reinforce the narrative, Ben, to say, okay, you're going to do this because you have to do this. And, and depending on what it is, I mean, you're, for your listeners, it could be a big, important sale. Um, it could be telling your boss that you're leaving, or it could be asking for a promotion. It could be a, a number of things. And I think there are many ways that you can kind of get yourself uh, riled up to say, okay, this is important. I need to do this. I can do this. And so let me, let me encourage myself. And I think it's important to recognize in others when they need to hear that too. Um, I think so often we take for granted that people do a certain job or certain tasks and we forget to tell them, Hey, I really appreciate how well you do this. And sometimes that can really make the difference in someone who might be harboring thoughts of, Hey, they don't appreciate me. I'm going to go somewhere else. And you never know what you might thwart in uh, just reminding people of something that hopefully you think they already know, but they still want to hear it. Right. I mean, if we know the value of saying it to ourselves, we can imagine the value of, of saying it to someone else and what it means to them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, obviously, I think it could be taken too far. I mean, you could imagine a bunch of comedians <laughs> sitting around just complimenting each other all day long and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and all. But uh, no, I, I do. I think that's very important. And the, uh, the military, at least in my experience in the Navy, does a very good job of rewarding enlisted people with various, whether it's a, a ribbon or a medal or time off for, hey, this is your job. Yeah, but you did it well. And so that's a good thing because they, of course, are trying to incentivize that behavior, right? They want people to know that if this is your job, well, then do it because it's important. That is, again, from the outside looking in, and this is why I feel so lucky and, and grateful to have you on the podcast from the outside of military. And, and I don't know if this is purely due to Hollywood films again, and I apologize if so, um, but that, uh, that discipline totalitarian approach the way you speak, it doesn't sound as if that's where you came from, even though that may be true. You know, so what is that like in the Navy? Is is there a lot of that positive affirmation uh, being tossed around? Uh, 
I, I would say so. In my experience, I definitely observed it. And, and I think, you know, it's the carrot or the stick, right? So the carrot is, I think, a very effective tool to get the donkey in this example to pull the load or whatever is needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the stick is always available and the military doesn't shy away from using the stick. But why only use the stick? I mean, we all have heard, and again, to your point, seen in the movies, the, the authoritarian, real difficult boss or parent I mean, yeah, sure, the job gets done, but nobody feels better. It's a scorched earth policy. And so particularly in peace times, if we can if we can use a softer approach to inspire people instead of making people fearful and we get the same results, who, who wouldn't rather be in that environment? And so I think that the good leaders do strive for that, but they're also firm and they're fair and they know when to use the different styles of leadership that are required. Now, to your point about Hollywood, you know, look, nobody wants to watch a movie about real fighter pods because they're, they're, it's boring. I mean, first off, we spend way too much time talking about what we're going to do, uh, reference your earlier question about planning. Then we do it for a little while, and it can be exciting, sure, but then we come back and we talk about what we did for hours and hours in this debrief. And it's not just gutsiest move I ever saw, and then you go play volleyball. It's, it's really, look, what were you thinking here? Because this is what you should have done, and let's make sure we do it better tomorrow. And I think that's just part of the real world versus the Hollywood world. And that's okay because nobody would go see the movie if it was too real. You bring up an interesting point on the debrief. And when I was looking through some of your content on this concept to debrief, it sounds it's just as intense as the planning before the the mission or the flight. Now, you, you obviously touched on the importance of this. Is there a part of it that is psychological, philosophical in this debrief? Well, in so much as the intent of the debrief is to identify what went wrong and fix it. Right. So, uh, I, and I, when I'm not thinking I use this at home and it never works well. Right. So you can't just point out the faults in your spouse or your kids and fix it. You have to, uh, to, to what I was saying earlier, you have to point out the things that are going well and, and celebrate little victories. Uh, you're going to beat down a child if all you do is point out their flaws. So, you come back and I think you quickly talk about the goods and others, but then you really drill down on, look, if you're going out and doing air to air training and somebody does a wrong maneuver and in real life that would have gotten them shot by a missile, well, that missile is going to explode their airplane and they're either going to be captured and held prisoner or they're going to be killed. And so these aren't just, oh gosh, you won this one. uh, I'll win the next one. It's training for war. I mean, that's what the military does. And, and so you can't sugarcoat it. And so I don't think I'm answering your question, but I hope I'm at least going to hit around the bullseye here, Ben. Is, is that you, you don't you don't gloss over mistakes. You don't sugarcoat it. You 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 look through it and you say, what are the two or three biggest things we need to work on for tomorrow? And certainly you should have no trouble in almost any flight finding a couple things you can do better. I, I flew for almost 25 years. I had one tour out of my however many 12 tours over 25 years where I didn't fly, but the rest of the time I flew and I never had a perfect flight, Ben. There was never a flight where you got back and like, all right, that's as good as it gets. Let's go home. (laughs) Always something. And so what you don't want to do is point out everything, especially if it's an instructor student relationship, but there's always something. And you internalize that, you think about it, you ruminate on it. And the next day, if you come back and you fix that one thing, that's awesome. Or two things or three things. But then guess what? Something else will be messed up and you work on that. And it's not perfection that you're after. It's the, it's striving for perfection. And I think that's an important distinction. 
See, and that, and you just nailed it. I mean, it's this growth mindset of wanting to, this continuous aiming up, as I would reference the, the hero's journey, is this continuous uh, approach to life that, okay, let's, if we can, how can we improve ourselves to improve the world? And how can we, how can we do, live that out and act that out? And I think the approach you have in the debrief, you know, rate right to plan, but where are the little things that we could fix? And let's come together and, and try and do that. And I just, I think it's important to point that out, especially in the time we're in, you know, it's, it. some people are well off right now, some aren't. And, and that's pan- referencing the pandemic, but also not just generally, yeah. um, you know, inequalities in the different situations in life i think imagine that was a a debrief and i even it sounds so much more powerful as i think about you saying it because you're a family you know you think about doing that as a family where you you know you don't go home and sit on your phone and and watch netflix you sit down for five ten minutes and say what was awesome about today let's let's talk about a couple of those things but then where's some somewhere you could be better and i think that is obviously the most difficult. Then, then we find, go on Instagram instead because it's easier to look on Instagram than, than you know, entertain things that we want to improve about ourselves or about our day. Yet, you know, a little call to action. You want to be like a fighter pilot, which I think a lot of people <laughs> that I know, at least in my close circle, would love to say, well, come home and do a debrief. You know, mm-hmm. focus on the, and that doesn't mean just the negatives. That's the positives, but also areas we can improve. So, so I love that. I think that constant improvement approach is very much the hero's journey and, and lots of what we talk about on the podcast. So uh, I think that's fantastic. I, I do have a question at the end of that, unless you have something to say. Well, I will just say, I agree with you, Ben. A lot of places will call it a post-mortem and it, it can be done when something goes well too. So a business might decide to get everybody together and figure out what happened if they didn't win some bid. But it's a good idea to do it even if you did win the bid because you might win the bid because you might decide, hey, you know, we got it this time and we got lucky, but we really should have said this or not said that. And so a post-mortem debrief, call it what you want. I I think it's valuable. Maybe not in everything. Again, you don't want to beat your kids down, but it is Mm -hmm. one of the reasons I insist on family dinners where it's available because it's just a time to get together and say, what's going on in your life? And, And I, I sometimes ask my kids, what did you fail at today? You know, wh- where did you, and one will say, oh, I've totally forgot my books in my locker for this class. You know, this is back pre-COVID, right? Like, oh, well, how, how can we do it better next time? Well, a friend came up and distracted me, whatever. So yeah I, yeah, I think there's value in it, but like anything, you know, within reason. I, I'm curious on how that negative news or, or approach to the negative side of things is approached in the Navy. When you are doing a debrief, is there something that provokes people to want to share? I would say it's a demand for excellence and professionalism because the military aviation community has that as part of their just MO. I mean, it's not lackadaisical. It's not fly by night. It is, this is what we do. And and again, it comes back to what I said before. It's very risky and it's very expensive. And either one of those is not worth squandering when there's lives at stake. And, you know, every time you read about or hear about an F-35 that crashes now, you know, if you read down far enough in the notes on a, on a news page, you'll see someone invariably say, oh, there goes $100 million. And it's a bit trite, but it kind of is the point, right? Like if, if a guy is distracted and can't land correctly and crashes his airplane, that's really bad. Now, that being said, humans are not zero defect uh, we shouldn't have a zero defect mentality. And so there's a demand for professionalism, but there's also an understanding of this great journey, uh, this human race. And so it's unfortunate, but that is why some pilots, when they have a mishap, 
are permitted to continue flying. And in fact, probably are going to be better off in a sense, even if they did squander a hundred million dollars than a pilot who hasn't, because you can be darn sure that lesson is going to stick with him or her pretty darn well. That you just, so you just opened up a can of worms. How right. is it that you show up to work, you've debriefed from Monday to Thursday, or sorry, planned, sorry, planned from Monday to Thursday, yes. and then you get in this $100 million machine with risk involved, not only on the financial side, but just risk to you as well as a human being. You know, how is it that you channel that, recognize it, accept it? I don't know what words you would use to then clear your mind and be able to focus on now we know the long list of things you need to do during your job. I, you know, Ben, uh, this might be the first one where you get me. I, I don't really know how to answer that. I will, I will say that there are people that say, oh, I'd love to be a doctor, but I can't stand blood, right? But you get someone like Ben Carson. I just read his book, Gifted Hands, and he's talking about separating Siamese twins, and he's talking about stopping the bleeding, and there's the brain and the skull and all these things, and I'm just grossed out, for lack of a better term, and thinking, how can this guy do this? But that is his profession, right? I mean, that is what he was trained to do. He has an affinity for doing, and he has it with such skill and, and passion that he's writing books and making a difference in people's lives in more ways than one. And so I applaud Ben Carson. I think it's the same for fighter pilots, even if we don't know their names or read their books. I think people that are drawn to this profession understand the inherent risks, right? A race car driver, I don't think goes into racing thinking, well, I'll probably never crash. Well, crashing is a real part of it, especially NASCAR. Uh, and so I think it comes with the territory, but it also attracts a type of person who understands that and who accepts it and says it's worth the risk because the thrill is amazing. And I don't mean to belittle any of these risks we're talking about, but it is thrilling. I mean, the, the seat of the pants feeling of flying a fighter jet is like nothing else. I'll tell school-aged children, it's like being on a roller coaster, except you get to decide where it goes. Except that's a gross understatement because it's way better than a roller coaster. And so I would say it's maybe a bit of a cop-out, but it's just professionalism. And we hold each other to such a high standard that frankly, if you don't meet it or you don't have the attitude to try to meet it, you can get washed out. And it doesn't matter. It's not just in flight training. It can be in the actual fleet, as we call it, the squadrons, where they say, hey, you know, this this guy has kind of the wrong attitude or doesn't take it seriously or just isn't developing. And it's not too late to wash someone like that out. And it does happen. Fascinating. Now, you said something interesting uh, in that response, and it was these, these people, including yourself, have the affinity for doing. And now, what that provo provokes in my mind, as I learned from so many incredible people like yourself that I've been lucky enough to talk to, is that often that that you do the thinking beforehand, but when once it comes to execution, and I've seen this in professional athletes, I've seen this in uh, neurosurgeons who we just had on a few episodes ago, it be, it, you do the planning beforehand, but then there comes a point where you you do go on and, and leverage that subconscious because you just are so enamored and in love and excited by what you are doing. And from the sounds of your answer, that's what it is. You get sucked into this this job because of your affinity for doing, not for thinking about doing, but for actually acting. Well, gosh, Ben, I, th I think you just hit the key to a successful life, quote unquote, right? I mean, if uh, who was it that said, if, if you find a job you love doing and you have fun doing it, people will never know if you're working or playing. So I, I, think, I think each of us, as I often say on my show, 
call it God, call it Darwin, call it whatever you want. Each of us has our own path, our own journey in life. And I've always felt badly for the people, not who weren't doing what I was doing, but who weren't doing what they were designed to do. Because again, you've got people like the neurosurgeons you had on the show or Ben Carson, you got people like me. And if they loved what they were doing, good on them. And they might look at me and say, you're crazy for landing on an aircraft carrier at night, uh, which I do have to agree with that part. But the rest was fun. Um, but but for me, I, I, I loved being a fighter pilot, I, everything about it almost. I mean, there are some parts that you don't. And I think that's probably true for any profession. And so I would say if there are young people listening to this is really search and go deep and ask other people maybe who, who observe you and know you. And don't just settle for doing something someone else wants you to do in life. And don't just settle for flipping burgers unless you really were put on this earth to flip burgers and you're going to do it better than anyone else. In which case, do it and enjoy it. But I think we all need to find our purpose and, and we need to pursue it with everything we have. And if you're lucky that it's something noble and worthwhile and gives you a good career and they pay you handsomely for it, well, then all the better. It brings up uh, something one of my best buddies said to me, who's been a huge supporter of this podcast. He brought up Elon Musk, and he said, I think one of the issues today is that people thought or think that Elon Musk woke up one day and said, I want to be a billionaire, and then figured out how to make the electric car and now trying to find a way to get people to Mars. But it was the reverse. It was, I want to try and change travel. I want to try and save the planet. I want to try and get humans to space. Oh, and oh, by the way, it'll actually make some decent money too. Okay, then I'll keep pursuing this kind of thing. I think it was, you know, people forget that. So they look at the number first and then find a job that can make that. And and I, it, it sounds ridiculous. And, and listen, people listening may think, oh, that's, that's crazy. I hear these conversations all the time. Like I hear them all the time on campus. I hear them all the time. You're at a coffee shop. You know, how, how can I make money without putting in as much time as I'm putting in right now? right? That's the classic one. Or how can I, you know, this person makes this much money, drives this car. How can I do that? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go find a job that'll do that. And I just think, Oh, absolutely. I, I think anyone who is asking that question needs to be told they're asking the wrong question. I mean, you need to find your purpose in life. And I'm also mindful of the quote by Zig Ziglar. I may not get it exactly right, but you can get everything you want in life if you give everybody else what they want, right? And so I think that's probably what you're talking about with Elon is he, mm-hmm. he put, he didn't say, I want to make a bunch of money. Let me figure out how to do it. He said, I want to solve this problem or I want to do this. And same with, I tell my sons this all the time. Look, if, if you, if you get give me what I want. You're more likely to get what you want. And so I think there's an element of both of those in life that don't just look at the end state. And and by all means, if you're just worried about money, I I don't think you're going to lead a very fulfilled life because Rockefeller tells us, right? How much is enough? Just a little more. You're you're never, you're never (laughs) going to be satisfied. But what is satisfying is making a difference whether it is in the military or with young people or with old people or with sick people or with with no other people, maybe with Mother Earth or in business or whatever it is that you were put here to do. I think you got to figure that out and and do it so well that the results follow. And and I think that's really the sweet spot. And, And I unfortunately think in our somewhat materialistic society, we all peg the word success with the bank statement. And I don't think that's true. I think there's a lot of success at a lot of different levels. And frankly, as I've continued to do well over my life, I I, I make more now than I've ever made before. I wouldn't say I'm no more free from problems. They just, they, they follow me up. You know, your, your mortgage gets bigger, your car payments get bigger, everything gets bigger along with it. So true. I want to kind of take a step back here and say, you know, in life, in success, in, uh, 
having a satisfying, fulfilling career, a word that often gets thrown around is, is the word discipline. And I feel like a lot of people have different approaches to that. And, and I don't want to give my view. I, I'm curious of what yours is. And, and when I say the word discipline, I'll leave it open-ended there. What do, you, what do you think of and what is your approach to the word or the idea? It's funny you say that because I remember a, a setback. It's it's good that I don't remember what the setback was now, but it was early in my career and I was home and I was mad at myself and I had one of those little door jam pull-up bars and I just jumped on the thing and I've never been good at pull-ups, but I did as many as I could, you know, five or six. <laughs> and I just kept saying to myself, discipline, discipline, discipline. And so it's one of those words, it's a bit nebulous, right? It's like the balloon. You squeeze it on two sides and it just squeezes out the other way. I think it's different for different people. But as a society, I think we generally interpret discipline as knowing the right thing to do and then being able to do it both with your brain and with your body. I mean, our bodies need to be disciplined. Look, I just turned 50 a couple months ago and uh, it's getting harder and harder because my body's more than happy to put on weight, but it's not very happy to take it off. And so I've got to go out and swim or run or whatever it is I'm doing that day. And, and same thing with your body and your brain. Now, in my case, Ben, I'm half Italian, which is wonderful and bad. It's wonderful because I can blame a lot on it, but it's bad because every once in a while, if I may stereotype my ancestors, uh, there's a part of me that just wants to fling my arms up and throw a big fit and, and act what you might think of as a stereotypical Italian. And that usually doesn't work too well. And so in those moments, I remind myself, okay, that might be what you want to do, but maybe you need to do the exact opposite. So I think self-control, self-awareness, understanding, being mindful of other people, I think all of those are ingredients into a meal that we would call discipline. I I love that approach. I, I, I agree 100%. And the, the little point I will pull out of it that I want to take even further is you said self-awareness. And I think there's, there's a difference between cracking yourself with a whip to do something that you, for whatever reason, don't really want to do because that can get old and then you get burnt out whipping yourself to go to the gym. It's like, why don't I become a little more self-aware and figure out why going to the gym is so difficult or why doing X is so difficult? So I, I totally love your, your approach to discipline. I think it was well-defined. Thank you. I want to touch on a couple more behavioral, psychological, philosophical things, and, and then we'll get to the, the sexy side of the conversation. But <laughs> when, it, when it comes to uh, teaching, you know, I think you are clearly an incredible teacher, as I've, I've learned over the last 38 minutes so far. Um, in an interview, you said that as a Top Gun instructor, you are applying everything that makes you who you are, but then fine-tuning that to razor-sharp edge. You can't change, and then you're talking about the um, people that you've been able to teach, and you, you, know, you can't change the color of their hair or skin, which doesn't matter anyways. Everything gets honed to a point to where you are the best of who you can be, and you're never the same after that. Can we dive into that a little further? What do you mean by these individuals can get to a point where they're never the same after? Yeah. Well, before I do, I think in light of current events in society, it's probably worth mentioning that it's not quite so black and white, pun intended, uh, with the skin color. I mean, clearly society has a long way to go in that uh, two children that are born under certain similar relative circumstances may not get the same opportunities, same treatment, become the same people based on a still, by golly, couple hundred years later, uh, you know, skin color. And, and, and that's, I, I understand a direction you don't want to go. 
but but it's important, and, and I think our society needs to eventually see if we can't put this to bed once and for all. But I, I, I don't, unfortunately, I'm not convinced we'll ever get there. Um, but I, I think it's a function of getting back to something I said earlier, which is we're all different. Uh, ben, you and I are different. I mean, we have similar aspirations and inclinations on these topics that we're talking about today, and I enjoyed our discussion very much. Thank you. But we're still different people. We might have different persuasions. We might have different political bents. We might have different hobbies. And and that's perfectly okay. In fact, it's needed. If we were all the same, we'd just be robots. And so if you and I were in a situation where, uh, all right, so earlier you put me in the instructor position, so let me just stick with that. If, if I were instructing you, it wouldn't be about me beating you into a, a, a shape that looks like me. It's me trimming off the fat of you to make you your best version of you right? Because that's the best you can hope for. You'll never be me. And you don't want to be, by the way, but <laughs> you'll never, I mean, you'll never look like me, talk like me, have the same color, the same hair, all those things. And so all we can hope for is what is the best version of Ben? And so as an instructor, I need to recognize that. And oh, by the way, if I have a class of you, uh, of other people like you, right? Well, the person you're sitting next to might be different. And so I need to be able to tailor that. Now, my father, besides being a musician, was a teacher in the Los Angeles school district. And my wife used to be a teacher until we started having kids and she <laughs> kind of lost the appetite for it. Uh, but I was a Top Gun instructor. And so I feel like instruction slash teaching is kind of in my blood and in my family. And so I have a heart for it. And I think we lose track of the fact that it's, it's about the recipient. It's about the student. Uh, not the teacher. And so we really need to find the way to build them up. Now, we can't just sugarcoat, as I said earlier, the, the things that need to be trimmed off, the fat, right? But we also need to develop the muscle. And so that's what we used to do at Top Gun was maybe, maybe one person's best is lower than someone else's, but can we get that person towards that best and is the best good enough? And if it's not, well, that's a different issue. But it's got to be different, I think, for the different people. Such a healthy approach to to leadership, and a more I think comes back to that. You're not, you know, whipping yourself and whipping the student. Even to, you know, we need to get to this hypothetical ideal of perfection. It's more that's such a, a more realistic approach that I think you can attack every day without getting burnt out. I think that's fascinating. If if the intention is right, right. In other words, if if you're looking to do that every day, but it's just a a, a beat down, right? That'll that'll wear anybody out. Think about horses; they're you know just beat. They, you know they're not going to pull the the uh, the the plow anymore, kind of thing. But I, I think it's a combination, as we talked about earlier, and and it's got to be well intentioned too. It can't be superficial. So there's a lot to it. I like that. So if you could put into a simple terms your approach to teaching and leadership, if someone said I had Vincent as my teacher, what would be the, I guess, the synopsis of you as a teacher, if you could define yourself? I hate to put you on the spot, but I kind of want to because you're such a smooth talker. I thought, okay, let's, <laughs> let's see what you can do. So yeah, how would you sum up yourself as a, as a leader, as a teacher? Well, I'll take smooth talker in the uh, positive sense. Thank you, Ben, because I think some might suggest I could turn around and try to sell you oceanfront property in Arizona if I was too smooth. But, um, you know, I, it's, it's a bit of a, I, so I listen to some other podcasts, not as much anymore because I don't commute as much, but 
um, there are some leadership shows with um, Andy Stanley and uh, Dave Ramsey and a few others, and, and they talk about servant leadership. And so that has gone so far that I even heard on one episode someone saying, all right, we want to get rid of this term because we just want leadership to under, to be understood as servant leadership. In other words, and I made a post about this on Facebook the other day, frankly, um, just within my own group. I was kind of frustrated with, with my, you know, the, our our lot in life politically. And I said, you know, we've got all these different people out there, both protesters and leaders and all these different people that, that have, I shouldn't have said leaders because that's the point I want to make. Right. So people (laughs) in politics, but, but, you know, we've identified all these different things, but where are the real leaders? I mean, the people who understand that leadership isn't a status symbol, it's not an entitlement because you've worked in politics for so many decades, it's not the last thing you put on your resume because you've done everything else, it's a burden. It is for the people you're leading, not for the glory of the role for you. And I, I, I feel like our society, not to take this too sideways, Ben, forgive me, but our, our political situation in this country has lost track of that. And unfortunately, anyone who comes with that approach isn't going to do real well because we have a very short, uh, t- uh, not tempered, but you know, short attention span um, society that just wants to hear the latest and greatest and who crashed and burned and who said the most ridiculous thing or tweeted it. And so I, I feel like the, the real leaders out there, and a lot of them come from the military, but a lot of them come from business, are probably smart enough not to jump in because it's just such an, a, an ugly battle that they can't win or game that they can't win. And so um, I'm a little bit, uh, frankly, disheartened in our society in that regard. But for me, sorry, off my soapbox, um, I, I think of it as it's, it's not about me, right? The, the leadership isn't about the leader. It's about the follower. And it's about setting the conditions for the followers to succeed, removing the hurdles where they exist, and then, and then being a cheerleader. And I don't know if that's a derogatory term or not, but I like it. I, it's, I, I'm not just thinking about it in the old sense, like with the fifties with the football jock and the cheerleader, but the like, Hey, good job. You're going the right direction. And, and sometimes maybe the cheerleader needs to turn into the guardrails of mm, Nope, not quite that direction. But hmm. I think it's really more about the, the, the mission and the people doing it than it is about the person who's in the limelight as the quote unquote leader because so often in the military, I hope that the right people get there, but in politics, I'm not so sure. Did I, did I answer your question, Ben? And I hate to now try and regurgitate it in my own words, but it was totally an, a heroic approach to leadership and to living. And I think the buzzword that you said was burden. And I, I love that because it's you said taking on the burden. And I, I heard a quote the other day, it might have been someone on the Tim Ferriss podcast. I'm not sure, but there's quotes all over social media now. And it was basically a short little synopsis saying, uh, you know, someone in the room has to be the happy, they can be the happy person. And, and it's tough work to be the happy person, but I'm willing to take on that burden to always be the person in the room that's happy. And I think, and I may be stretching this, but I think that relates to what you say, you know, to, to go out of your way to try and be the optimistic one in the room and put up with people maybe talking negatively and putting up with the negativity all around you. It's a burden you're taking on for those people around you, followers or not, people around you. And to me, that makes you a leader. And, and, and you're doing it not for the accolades. It's without the accolades, but with the discomfort. And I think that's, that's a key point that you made. Well, and I would say that, that what you just described, Ben, requires an extraordinary amount of emotional intelligence because 
and if people aren't familiar, right, that's a lot different than IQ. But the emotional intelligence means to be able to understand that that role is needed and then do it regardless of how you feel, right? So some people get up in the morning and, oh, I don't feel good today, so I'm going to be a grouch. And, and it's a choice. It's a decision. But I think what you just said is right. If you're in an organization where you have a particular skill set that is needed to be able to recognize that and do it reliably so that the organization benefits from you being, in your example, the optimist, that that is as big a con- contribution as I think you can make. And with leaders who are maybe in the limelight as having to do it all, and so I'm looking at kind of the highest levels here, it, it takes so much more than that. I mean, because you might have to be the optimist in one moment, but you might have to then turn around and grieve with someone who maybe just lost uh, a soldier or son or someone to cancer. So there's all these different aspects of being a leader and in the military, it's so much more because it's not just you come to work and then you go home. In the military, it's like family also. And so there's those elements of it. But again, as I said earlier, it has to be sincere. I mean, nothing is more ugly, I would say, than insincere uh, grieving with somebody or just the, the shallow, fake caring and leading like, oh, I'm going to pretend to be a servant leader, but really I just want to get done so I can go home and do whatever it is I do. I I mean, it's got to be genuine. And I think humans do a good job of sniffing that out when it's not. I wanted to dive into some of the performance side of things. Like you briefly touched on what it is like taking off from an aircraft carrier. Can you go into the the numbers just to get listeners excited of what, what, you know, the math side of, of you're going from sitting there on that flight deck and then you're, you know, shot off into flight. Could you, yeah, could you go into the the numbers on that? Absolutely. I mean, I can't sit here and give you the amount of Newtons or uh, the, the, the actual force uh, on you. But I think for anyone who's been to in a theme park lately, uh, again, I'll go back to my roller coaster analogy. There are some that old style that you go up the hill first because they need to send you up where there's some potential energy for the thing to work. And then there's others like, uh, I guess it used to be called California Scream, and I don't know what it's called anymore at uh, California Adventure in Disneyland, Southern California. And you, you, you come out of the the house there where you load onto the thing and then you sit there and they count down and it's like a shot and then you you know they send you off on your way and it's really thrilling of course that's the whole point and so when you're going from a standstill in a 44 50,000 pound aircraft you have to be able to fly that thing at probably 170 miles per hour well, the catapult stroke is only 180 feet long. So I suppose if I had dusted off some of my old physics, I could have come up with this. But um, <laughs> it's pretty thrilling. I want to say it's something like four Gs laterally into your chest, where once all your procedures are done and you've saluted or turned on your lights in the case of the nighttime, and then the shooter touches the deck and points and off you go, you're going from zero to about 170 in a couple seconds. And it's just thrilling. I can't think of a better way to put it than that, Ben. Now you talked about G's and and I'm very my knowledge is very limited on G's. But when you're taking off versus when you're banking, what, how many G's is it that your body can take? How many have you taken? And and have you had any close calls with loss of consciousness or anything while flying? Right. Well, so a G force is if you're sitting down like I am, then we are sitting in our chairs with one G going through our 
top of our scalp, through our spine, into our buttocks, into the chair. And so that one G is holding you to the ground here, right? So if we were instead uh, sitting in the roller coaster and it goes over one of those hills and you feel like you're floating in your seat, well, the earth is still pulling on you, but now you're free falling. So you're effectively feeling zero Gs. And then of course, if it goes upside down and hangs you there, you might be feeling negative one G. So all those to set the stage for in an aircraft, you don't just turn like a car, you actually roll and then you pull. And so let's say you roll to 90 degrees of angle of bank. So your wings are straight up, one is straight up, one is straight down, and then you pull the stick back in your lap. And so that's how you make your turn. Anyone who's ever been to an air show has seen what they would call like the minimum radius turn where the aircraft comes in from the left, turns a big circle in front of you and then departs to the right. Well, at the peak of that, you might pull as many as nine G's. So if you weigh normally 200 pounds, you effectively weigh 1800 pounds. And during that time, the blood in your head is going to be affected by that G-force and it's going to want to vacate your head. And for your brain to function, that's not a good thing. And so what you, what you do is you have what's called an anti-G straining maneuver. It's a, it's a maneuver that you perform with your body. And if you'll forgive the uh, relation here, uh, Ben, it's a little bit like bearing down when you're on a commode trying to take care of business. But the idea is that you're forcing, and in this case, you're not so much trying to force something down and out, you're trying to force the blood up and into your head, because that's where your eyes and your brain need it. And so we have a maneuver that we do, uh, as well as we have certain equipment in the aircraft that squeezes your torso and your legs to try to prevent the blood from pulling out of your head. And you also build the tolerance. Uh, after you do it enough times, just like most things in life, you get to the point where your, your body knows and it can react accordingly, but it's also depending on how rested you are and how well hydrated you are. And so all of that affects your ability to pull G's. And then when you're maneuvering and you know, it's coming, you just pull. Now you asked me how many is the most I've ever pulled. I think I pulled 9.2 in an F-16 and I stayed awake through all that. Um, and I've heard on my own show, the fighter pilot podcast, uh, people who've said they had guys who were worried about hitting the ground. And so they completely pulled way more than the aircraft was designed for uh, past 11, 12. I think I even heard 14 G's. And of course that aircraft's wings were bent up and I don't think it flew again. Um, but people can sustain that when there is a need to, uh, and if it's, if it's fight or die, then you're going to do what it takes. And so. Um, what happens then last part of your question is the, the blood in your eyes, as it vacates, your eyes will have just a little kind of like memory, if you will, in the sense, as far as, okay, I can still provide vision with what's left, but once the blood is gone, it starts fading quickly. And so that's one of the cues that they teach you is if you see your peripheral vision coming in, or if you see your eyes starting to scintillate a little bit or start going gray, then that's your cue that you either need to bear down harder or let off the G because that's the first cue, the A-lock, almost loss of consciousness before you have what's called G-lock or G-induced loss of consciousness. And that's where your body at that point just says, I'm done, I'm shutting down. <laughs> can, can autopilot take over or what happens at that point? <laughs> so, so some aircraft do have an uh, auto GCAS, auto ground collision avoidance system, and the, the computers, right? If it's cables and pulleys and, and fabric like in the old fighters, there's no way an uh, aircraft is going to know this. But everything these days is computers, and it's fly-by-wire. I tongue-in-cheek call it fly-by-vote because you put an input in, and the computer says, mm, 
I think I'll give you this. And then you get hopefully the performance you want. And so if let's say you're the pilot, Ben, and I'm the aircraft, and all of a sudden you roll hard to the left, you pull nine G's for a couple seconds, and then there are no stick inputs at all. And I'm the computer, right? And so I'm, I'm feeling this, I'm watching this. I'm like, hmm, now he's not doing anything. Oh, look, we're heading downhill and he's still not doing anything. Oh, look, here comes the ground and he's still not doing anything. Well, what do you think, Ben? Do you think I'm going to guess that you're awake or asleep? And so the F-16 has this and I think a few others, um, and it's coming for the F-35. The F-18 does not, at least the last when I left, and it has saved people's lives. It has saved pilots' lives. And of course, um, our F-35 guest on the show, if I remember correctly, had a wingman or a friend that was lost uh, due to this. So he made it his personal crusade to get it on the F-35 as quickly as possible. Um, but it's tragic. Um, but I guess there are some pilots that would say, well, I don't want any more automation. It's like race car drivers, I assume, would say, I don't want oversteering control. I don't want analog brakes. I don't want traction control. I want to drive the car. And there are pilots that say the same thing. But, you know, between you and me, it's it's a lifesaver. It, if, if you pass out, and you will at some point in your career, I, maybe I shouldn't say it that strongly. I never did, but it is a constant threat. Let me put it that way. And as long as it doesn't incorrectly take over the controls of the airplane when in fact you were fully awake and trying to do something else, which you don't hear about too many of those false positives, if you will, that uh, for the most part, I think it's a system people are coming around to. I, I would, I would hope so for the safety yeah. of everyone, everyone involved. And on that note, I know you have in your the homepage of your website that um, ejection seat. Now, have you ever heard any stories? Or uh, I hate to ask, have you ever been involved in the experience of in, of that situation uh, in flight? N- well, not in so much as riding the seat, other than sitting on it for. Probably when I looked at the math, uh, wondering if you were going to ask something along these lines, uh, <laughs> I, I realized that I've probably spent seven consecutive months, 24 hours a day, sitting in ejection seats. Uh, but Ben, I'm happy to tell you that I never once had to pull the yellow and black handle to try out the rockets attached to it. Um, but I know plenty of people who have, and it is a lifesaver. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. There are some people who eject uh, what's called out-of-the-envelope meaning it doesn't matter that the seat has these capabilities. Uh, You're just in a position where it can't possibly save you. And in fact, uh, I unfortunately witnessed two friends of mine do that. Uh, They were injected, uh, excuse me, they were ejected out of their stricken aircraft straight into the water next to the aircraft carrier and were killed on impact. And so, no, I've never had to try it, uh, but I know people who have, and it's been successful and unsuccessful. Yeah, I'm happy you haven't have never had to do that, and I apologize to hear about your people you know that have been through that and, and aren't with us today. So yeah, no, it's it's baggage I carry to this day, unfortunately. But it, it, you know, I it, what can you do? Mm-hmm. So on on to the next topic is landing on an aircraft carrier. One landing on an aircraft carrier is in, is uh, is. <laughs> I think people in general that even are not uh, well-versed in, in your area of expertise know how insane that is. But then you've also talked about, in many conversations, doing this at night. So what is the speed you're coming, again, we a few numbers here. What is the speed you're coming in at and the area you have to land on? And, and how much can you see at night? Can you even see or when you're flying? Is there Or is it all uh, reliance on the computers at that point? 
Well, you're traveling, generally speaking, around 150 miles per hour. You could be going slightly more, slightly less. And of course, the wind is generally about 30 knots. So your approach difference is about 120. And normal field runways are probably 8,000 feet, let's say, for a military field. Obviously, civilian flyers out there are used to something quite a bit less. But for a fighter, generally about 8,000 is normal. So the landing area on an aircraft carrier is about 350 feet, maybe 400, but you're landing in the wires beyond the back of the ship. Of course, you don't want to land on the very end of the back of the ship. And by the time it pulls you to a stop, the cables, it ends up being about 200 feet. So you're landing in 200 feet instead of the normal six to 8,000 feet, let's say. And in the daytime, you can see everything. You have peripheral vision. You have proficiency, hopefully. If you're brand new, like when I first was, I was scared out of my wits, frankly. I said, there's the ship. I can't believe we're really going to do this after practicing for months over and over and over to get ready for that moment. And so later on, most pilots, they get to the point where they can enjoy the day landing because it's a challenge. At night, I don't really know anyone who ever enjoyed the night. There are varying degrees of fear and flat-out terror. Um, It's the darkest nights that are the most fearful because you don't have any peripheral vision. And you asked about the lights. There are lights on the carrier deck. And generally, all you see are a few lights to the right. Uh, If your listeners are familiar with what an aircraft carrier looks like, there's the big flat structure, uh, what's called the flight deck. It's about four and a half acres of steel. And then you have an island that sticks up out of it. It's just the metal structure where the captain who drives the ship and the air boss who controls the flight deck and a bunch of others sit. And so there will be some lights on it and some lights in the landing area where you are aiming. And then you have a reference light that you look at to make sure you're on the right glide slope. And then, of course, on the back of the ship, on the left or port side, as we would call it, are a handful of your fellow pilot buddies who, on their collateral duty day, are out there making sure you don't bust your hump uh, coming aboard. So the safe and expeditious landing of aircraft is the job of the landing signal officer. And so you have procedures that you follow. And you follow those, and they'll tell you if you're deviating from it. But again, part of the professionalism is I'm going to do everything I'm expected to do make all the voice calls I'm expected to give and I'm going to fly it to the best of my ability. And if it's better than Joe, Hey, great. But if it's not as good as Frank, well, that's okay. Cause I did my best. So cool. So when you, when you're flying in the night and you're not near the aircraft carrier, are you, I just like, I I don't know how I just thought of this now. There's really nothing to show. Like you, how do you know where you're going? Can you even see, or is it purely at that point, the computers? Well, if it's a clear night or if it's cloudy, but you get high enough, there's starlight. And I will tell you, at the risk of getting a little romantic here and everything else, that's as glorious as it gets, is uh, flying up in a fighter by yourself in a starry night where you're maybe in the middle of the ocean, uh, where there's no ambient light to drown it out. Uh, And then, of course, you can throw on night vision goggles and it looks like sand. I mean, there's just so many stars. And so uh, for folks who want to get as close to heaven as they can on earth, that's the way to do it. And it's, it's pretty magical. I will say that. Now you go below the, let's say the clouds that were, you know, you went above to see that. And now the clouds drown out any starlight, any moonlight. And on an aircraft carrier, you got a little bit of light from it, maybe one more ship next to it, but otherwise it's wide open ocean And it's just dark, Ben. It is scary dark. Because when you're pointing at the ship from, say, four miles away, it's just a tiny light source in your heads-up display. And 
you could be looking at it right side up. You could be looking at it upside down. You really can't tell. You ever sit and look at a single light source in the dark and you have that effect called autokinesis where it starts to feel like it's moving, but it's not? It, that, your brain plays all kinds of tricks on you. And so it really is uncomfortable. And night care landings, I would say, is probably one of, if not the most dangerous thing any military aviation outfit does. Because, And you can get on YouTube and look at plenty of landings gone badly. Uh, and it's just, it's just scary. I bet. Now, as you sit here and talk about these stories, uh, obviously takes adrenaline, obviously takes an interest in this, and we we already covered that. But in the movies, again, not to sorry to reference the movies, but even in, when you think about race car drivers, fighter pilots, you assume they're these adrenaline-seeking, high-energy individuals. But as I as I sit and talk with you, you seem quite calm, cool, and collected. And I wondered how you would articulate that balance between that adrenaline seeking in, I guess, general day to day, but you seem quite composed. <laughs> well, I think, thank you. First off, I think that the flighty ones who are easily riled up, uh, maybe don't do as well because it takes a certain element as we talked about at the top of, of you being able to say, okay, this is scary, but I'm going to handle this. I mean, what good does it do to flail your arms and yell and shout into the wind? Uh, you know, the, you still have to land the airplane. And so me personally, I, I like to snow ski. I like to, uh, ride motorcycles. I like to do adrenaline inducing activities. In fact, uh, my mother, I've got two brothers. And so she was always fearful that we always took to things that were in her mind, risky and dangerous and speed and, you know, uh, infused. Um, and so I think it's what I would say a managed risk. It's, it's a tempered risk. I, I think movies do a poor job of identifying the risk, um, not tolerance, um, but the, the risk awareness that fighter pilots have. In other words, it's not just, oh, too bad. I'm going to buzz the tower. And if I get busted and I never get to fly again, so be it. No, the reason we don't buzz, buzz the tower in real life is like, if they take my airplane away, my toys away, I'm going to be pissed. And so I'm going to do whatever it takes to not have that happen. I want to keep my wings. I want to keep flying because I enjoy it and I like it. And if I get busted and all that hard work to get to this point, just because I made some silly decision to do something that might be fun for an instant, well, I haven't done myself any good. So I think if you were to spend time with real fighter pilots, and if you look back at the PBS special from 2008, uh, it was called Carrier, you get to see a, a, a lot of them uh, showcase there. And I had a quick cameo in one part, but most of those guys you'll see, they, they, they make calculated decisions on risk and they don't just do whatever sounds fun or is, is the most bold. That's, that's not real life. Very smart. Now moving into the incredible story that, that I, I read a couple of days ago, and, and I think it'd be beneficial to hear it from, from the, from you that, that lived through it, but it was, um, the the story you have of the bomb drop, which you titled uh, "Famed Naval Aviator Vincent," um, <laughs> tells the story of one of the final U.S. airstrikes of the 20th century. And it, as I'm reading it, it's funny that it was it was I was kind of hearing it in the voice here before we had even spoken in this calm, cool, collected voice. And I, I wondered if you could go through that story and what it was like when when you're up at that high and you see that, you know, someone may be shooting up at you and then I guess where things went after that. 
Sure. Well, but if I can jump on one of the words you said, famed, I, I still laugh at that. I mean, okay, I have a podcast that's moderately successful, and I'm grateful to all the listeners and supporters. Uh, but I'll tell you, I still get up and put my pajamas on and walk my dog and pick up his poo with my bag. And, um, you know, I, I think my wife would be quick to tell you I'm no celebrity or, uh, or famous. But I mean, I recognize that I was blessed to have an amazing career that I knew what I wanted to do and was able to do it. And now I'm sharing it with people and in doing so they look up to me. And so from that regard, I'm grateful for that. But I also feel it's somewhat a, a duty of mine to share it because as I've learned with my own podcast, so many people aspired to this or aspire to it and either didn't make it or won't make it. And that's humbling because sometimes it's based on performance or your vision or colorblindness or whatever. And other times it's just, Hey, I did my best and they didn't need jet pilots that day. They needed helicopter pilots. And so that's where I ended up. And so there's a lot of that that goes into this. So I, you said earlier that I am humble and I appreciate that because I do try to be, I don't think too highly of myself and some might argue, I don't think high enough. Anyway, uh, what was the I question? I appreciate that. It was the, that, that, um, yeah, the bomb drop. Okay. Yes, I, yes. I like to sneak that in sometimes cause it's funny. Um, we, so we were, I was on my second deployment in my first command as an F-18 pilot. So I was a little more salty, but still relatively young. So I would have been, let's see, this was in 1999. So I would just have turned 29 and we were flying over Iraq and they were starting to get a little more testy. Um, I think at that time, was it still President Clinton had sent in the uh, inspectors and Saddam Hussein kicked them out. And so, all right, well, we're going to go bomb this site. You really have to let us in. Nope, we're going to shoot at you. And so it was one of these kind of, you know, schoolyard bullies, if I may say, kind of poking each other in the chest. Uh, but at the time, the, the December before, they had had an exercise called, not exercise, they'd had an operation called Desert Fox. It was like a miniature desert storm and our troops uh, air power went in and bombed a bunch of things and tried to make the point well a year later we're flying over and they said look if this happens then this is what you do it's kind of the rules of engagement if you will and so we went to look at a particular site where it was assessed there was some anti-aircraft guns looking at us or, or position let's say and I had my FLIR looking at one. That's a forward-looking infrared. It, it uses the infrared spectrum instead of the visual spectrum, um, part of the electromagnetic spectrum. And I was looking down at it, and I looked where I was supposed to, and all of a sudden I saw these little puffs. And I, frankly, Ben, I, I hate to confess it, but I honestly didn't know what it was. I, I've never been shot at before. All I've ever done is drop these little practice bombs, and when they hit, guess what they do? They go puff. So, so I said on the radio, like a dummy, Hey, good spots. Meaning someone's dropping practice bombs on these guys. I never stopped for a second to think, why would someone be dropping practice bombs on an Iraqi AAA gun dummy? And so I just said it. And right then and there, the executive officer of our sister squadron, who was our flight lead that day, said, hey, maneuver your jet. They're shooting at us. So kind of think of the glass of water in the face. Hey, wake up, dummy. This is really happening. Oh. All right, you know, now I'm back. All right, I'm with you. Um, and so, you know, it was just one of those things I can only laugh at now, ruefully, is how we put it in the article. Um, so we, we extended a little bit off to, I think we were heading north, so we just kept going north. Um, and, and we talked to a controlling agency who said, all right, well, the rules of engagement are if they're shooting at you, you can bomb them. 
So we literally came back around and dropped bombs and, and um, we were allowed to attack. And I think in the moment, there might've been an element of, oh my gosh, I can't believe we're really going to do this. But that's where, again, I think the professionalism and the training takes over. So, okay, this is our mission and this is how we're going to do it. And we had done that same thing, that same mindset over and over and over in training and in rehearsal. And so that's why anybody who has anything that's important, whether it's sales or music or fighter piloting, needs to rehearse and practice and train. Athletics, I mean, think about it. No, no football team shows up on Sunday having not trained for that day. Of course they do. And so when it came right down to it, we made two runs, my wingman and I, and we dropped two bombs. And when we left, that was when it kind of sunk in like, holy cow, we really just did that. And to be fair, Ben, I had dropped live bombs before on targets in training. And the reason they do that is because they want their pilots to feel what it feels like when it comes off the aircraft, that little shutter that the jet does, and to see what it looks like. But that was my first time ever doing it in, quote, anger. And, I, you know, we could debate the term anger in this regard because essentially, again, we were making a suggestion, or not a suggestion, we were making a point. Look, you shoot at us, we're going to blow up your toy. And then we kept we kept going home. And in the end, we turned in our video of it. I kept a copy for a while. I don't know if I still have it somewhere in my attic, but uh, you know, this is what we were told to do. We did it. We kind of high-fived in so much as, wow, we really did what all this time to this point. I mean, that was 1999. I started my flight training in 1993. So that was six years of culmination at that point. Wow, I really did it. But then I also thought, well, wait a minute. Did the gunner, like the intel officer told me, they come out, they take a few shots and they run back in their bunker. Did he or she do that or not? I don't know, but that's, mm-hmm. that's war. And, and that's effectively what we were in. I wouldn't really call that war. We were more in a, a skirmish, a battle, a fight. I don't know, but that, but that's what it was. And, and that's how I That's how it doesn't bother me is I think about it as that was his job. That this was my job. We both did it. Right. And I think that's what's, what was fascinating towards the end of the article, which was which was so interesting to read. You know, in, intelligence at the time indicated that Iraqi AAA gunners were largely unmanned. Their operators would run out from the bunkers, like you had said. And and what you said is we're war fighters, but nobody wants to kill or be killed. I I wanted to dive into that briefly as we start to sum things up here. I think that's a pretty powerful line to, to skip over and not focus on. Um, you know, nobody wants to kill or be killed. I I find that interesting. So is this, is this you uh, men and women are prepared, but hopefully things get figured out before it gets to that point. Is, is that the, is that the approach? Well, first off, I realize I dealt in absolutes and as we learned in Star Wars, only Sith deal in absolutes, right? Which was funny because that in itself was an absolute, but um, certainly in, and maybe in other professions of arms, there are people who want to kill in, in our profession. I never met warmongering fighter pilots. I, I never saw somebody who said, I can't wait to stick a knife in that guy's chest. I can't wait to drop a bomb on his forehead. I can't wait to grab him by the throat and slit it. I, I mean, you see that in Hollywood and different jobs, maybe special forces people. And I don't know, cause I'm only basing that off of the movies. I never did any tours with the special forces. Um, but at least in my experience, in my ready rooms, it was more of a, a profession. It was, this is what I'm supposed to go do, and I'm going to do it right now. If it was obviously an immoral or unlawful law, hey, go or not law, excuse me, uh, um, order, go bomb this school, go bomb this church, go bomb this hospital. That's a different story, and you're not asking that. What you're asking is, 
I have a job to do as a fighter pilot and I'm going to do that job and the results are going to be what they're going to be. And I, I don't want to, I, I, I mean, I really don't want, I, I recognize that human life is to be treasured, right? I mean, maybe arguably some more than others. And that's a really dangerous thing to say. I mean, here are frankly indentured peasant soldiers being told what to do in Iraq. They, they deserve better, uh, but uh, without getting on a soapbox is one of their lives worth one of mine. I don't, I don't know. I, it's not for me to decide, but it's still a human life. And of course there's a whole religious side of that. There's a whole moral and ethical side of that. So I know people who who did when it came right down to it take some glee in in shooting up uh, certain tanks or or guns or or different things, and I don't think it's at least for me. If I were to ever get in that position, it wouldn't be the glee of the gore of killing. I think it would be the glee of I can't believe I'm doing this part of my job and this is bitching because we're gonna we're gonna win. And we're going to look how much better we're making it for our side than the other side. But I mean, again, someone could think that about me. And if I'm the one who's killed, well, I know my wife and kids are going to be disappointed. I know my mother's going to be upset. I know there's a lot of people who know me and love me who are going to be affected by that. And so I try to treat other humans with that same bit of reverence. And so I, I try not to just say, it's about the killing. I think it's more about the, the, the destroying the military equipment and then getting to a point where we can decide, okay, we've had enough and then we can all go home. And so I don't know. I feel like I'm suddenly having to defend warfare for humans here, but at least that's the way I've always approached it. I, it, it's not something I really wanted to, I mean, that's, let's face it, Ben, that's why I went into aviation. When I look at scenes like Saving Private Ryan, where they're upstairs battling towards the end and the, and the German ends up overcoming the American and sticks his knife in his chest, that just bothers me. I would not want to be on either side of that, naturally, duh, uh, the American side. But um, that, like, that's a whole different level of warfare and a different discussion that you would have to have with someone else because that's not fighter pilots. Our, our killing is at a distance. It's sterile. It's remote. It's, it's gentlemanly almost, frankly. I mean... Uh, I, anyway, I've been rambling for a while, but um, it, it's it's not something. Yeah, I'm so foreign to an experience like that that to hear that approach to things is just fascinating. I think on on so many fronts, and and obviously you're so educated and articulate in explaining it, and I'm I'm so thankful for that and and for what you did with your career um, is just is just fascinating and incredible. Um, Thank you. so I, I really appreciate you opening up about that. Cause I know that's, geez, that's not an, an easy uh, topic to discuss. So, so I think that's, yes, I respect you for it. That's for sure. Now, such an incredible conversation. I want to end with two things. One is what was your favorite flight, your most exciting flight? Maybe it was training, maybe it wasn't, uh, but what was your favorite or, or most exciting flight? Or maybe it wasn't one of those trips by the stars. And then finally, what is it you do now? Because I can hear it in your voice when you talk about your podcast, how genuinely excited you are about it. So, so both of those favorite flight and what you do today. And that's all we have. So, yeah. Well, and if you don't mind, if I could just tie up one last thing on our previous subject, I mean, I don't want people to think I'm some 
pansy or anything else. I mean, if I were to be shot down and had to survive and it was kill or be killed, I, I, I'm quite sure I would and could do it. And then don't get me wrong. There are parts that boil my blood. I recall uh, several years ago, I think it was a Turkish F-16 pilot that was shot down over Syria. And I, I forget if it was ISIS or ISIL, if there was even a difference or, or whatever, but they, they put this pilot in a cage and burned him alive. And I, I just remember being so revolted by that, that if I were there and that was my wingman and I had the means to do it, I'm quite certain I would have choked every SOB in that group if I thought I could do it and survive myself because that just, excuse the pun, boiled my blood. And I just think that there is a time for, of course, righteous killing, um, but it's not something day to day that we, we look for in the, the profession of military aviation, at least in my mind. Uh, again, it was, it was about blowing up that gun. It wasn't about killing the gunner. Um, so uh, to your question, if I can start by telling you which one it wasn't, and that would be any flight that ended in a night trap. Um, so that's, that's about 270 I can rule out right there. Um, you know, I, I really tried hard to, to just enjoy every single flight and really get the most out of it. Now, there, of course, were some that were better than others, but uh, since you did warn me you'd be asking this, I looked back in my logbook, and I would say either November 7th, 2005, but I'll just go ahead and say uh, November 4th, 2003. And the reason that one is because earlier that day, I was on an aircraft carrier, and I had been for the previous eight months. And I flew home that day to Lemoore, California, in the central uh, San Joaquin Valley. And my wife, my three-year-old son, and my unborn son were waiting for me. And I just had such a sense of gratitude for what we had done. We had done our part. We'd stood our watch for eight solid months. Um, but also it was just so good to come home and see my family. Uh, and in the end, it's funny because I was just about to land and of all things had an engine failure. Uh, the F-18 is thankfully equipped with two engines and one of them failed. And one engine is a little more required than the other. And by that, all I mean is it powers your brakes and your nose wheel steering for the ability to steer on the ground and all that. Well, thankfully the one that, that failed was the other one, the one that wasn't as important. And so there are two parallel runways in Lemoore, and I was about to land on the first one is when my engine failed. And so my wife told me later, she said, oh, I saw you do a touch and go. I figured you'd had enough landing practice. And I said, I didn't do a touch and go. I waved off because my engine just quit. Well, they sent me to the other runway and I, I, I lowered my hook for the first time in eight months. I wasn't going to have to lower my hook to take a landing on the carrier, but I still did because it's a precaution when your engine is uh, having fits just to make sure you come to a stop. And so they said, well, we're going to have our big reunion here with all the pilots and all the wives without you. And I said, well, wait, it was this left engine. Uh, if they can hurry up and get me out, can I taxi in and join you? So sure enough, they all land except for me. My wife's counting all the numbers and she says, I didn't see your aircraft. And they all waited for me, my pilots, thank God. And uh, I pulled in late, pulled in, popped my canopy. We all came in. The, the plane captains were ready with roses and, uh, you know, we came running in and the kids came running out. Boy, I get emotional just thinking about it. And it was just such a great feeling because, again, you get to see your family and, uh, you know, your home and you've done your mission. And it was, it was just great. It, that's For me, that's what it's all about. Not the other mission we talked about in December. 
you got to do that if you got to do it. But when it comes right down to it, it's about the people, the folks you served with, and then the folks you get to see when you get home. And now today, what is it, what is it you are doing today to keep this exciting journey going? Well, the one thing I do that helps put food on the table is I'm an airline pilot. And of course, the airlines have been getting a little beat up uh, lately with COVID. And so there's some uncertainty there, but uh, that does help keep food on the table. But the other thing I do is when I separated from the Navy, I had two revelations, which uh, is is a miracle for me. But one was I didn't want to just walk away from 25 years of service, cold turkey, and have nothing to do with all that time. And the other is that I knew there was a lot of people out there interested in military aviation. So I had had a positive experience on another person's podcast as a guest and became friends with that host. And we talked about it and I can't remember if it was his idea. He says it was mine, but I looked in iTunes at the time and I said, nobody's doing any shows on military aviation. I wonder if I could do it. And he strongly encouraged me to. And so when I left the Navy in 2017, I had to learn my new airplane at the airlines. But uh, by the end of that year, I had everything finally ready. And on January 1st, 2018, I launched the Fighter Pilot Podcast, and it is the show, as we say, that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. And it's partly sharing my experiences, but it's also entertaining and informative and educational for people. We we have a lot of different topics. We'll explore different aircraft. We always have guests that come on. It's not just me rambling, as I've demonstrated, I think, pretty aptly today that I can do. But but it's just a lot of fun, and we have a community of people that really enjoy it. And it, it's great because I learn something every episode. The, the listeners get at something out of it. We've got a special group of people that support me on Patreon, almost 500 folks that get kind of the inside baseball on the things we're doing. They get bonus content, and they get to hang out with me on different things in Zoom and wherever. And so it's just a lot of fun. It's it's a hobby. It is a lot of work, no doubt about it, as you can, I'm sure, attest, Ben. But it it's, it's fun, number one, but it's also become a, a second job. It's a side gig for me, and I've got a team of volunteers, and we've got a lot of initiatives on things we're doing to serve people. And it's just one more way to continue serving because that's, I think, just one of the ways I exist. That brings us to the end of another Heroic Minds podcast. Thank you so much for listening. This was episode 99. We are coming down to the 100th episode ever of the Heroic Minds podcast. I can't believe I'm saying that. As I look back at the journey I've been through, so many lessons learned, so many mistakes made. Uh, but thank you so much for continuing to listen and support. I'm Ben Finelli. This is the Heroic Minds Podcast. We'll talk again soon.